This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the rest of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you do listen live, you'll know uh, that Resignation Friday has become quite the thing. Dominic Raab resigned on a Friday, Boris Johnson resigned on a Friday, Richard Sharp resigned on a Friday, and we had another one, Zach Goldsmith resigning on a Friday, accusing Rishi Sunak of being completely uninterested in uh, climate change. So we'll uh, we'll reflect on that a little bit. Uh, coming up on today's episode, I've been behind the scenes at Parliament TV uh, I made sure I didn't break anything or stop pressing any buttons. But we're looking at the history of the Commons being broadcast. And uh, we've got some great archive. I tell you what, we'll count down my top ten uh, moment, te- televised moments in the Commons as well. Uh, that's coming up in just a moment. We'll do the columnist with India Knight and James Mow in a moment. But first, as we always do on a Friday, as well as keeping an eye out for resignations, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that the Tories hadn't really thought through turning up to welcome Keir Starmer to Selby. They just welcomed him. We learned that whatever Laura Koonsberg asked Rishi Sunak about the Russian coup, he was going to say the same thing. Here's two of his answers. Well, we've, been that we've been monitoring for a while the potential destabling of impacts Russia's of Russia's illegal invasion in Ukraine to be destabilising. We're keeping a close eye on the situation as it's evolving, as it's developing. We're keeping a close eye on that. We're in touch with our allies. In fact, I'll be speaking to some of them later today. To some of them later today. The most important thing I say is for all parties to be responsible and to behave responsibly and as much as I can say in this moment. We learned that Tory MP Lee Anderson doesn't follow my view on pets after he suggested I spent too much time at school pretending to be a cat. We learn what Labour's M- Labour MP Ben Bradshaw was telling wannabe ministers to do in the office. I would also insist on having an hour in the middle of the day uh, protected unless it was the Prime Minister on the phone to do yoga uh, in my office. We learn that Asma Mir has specialist tastes. I yeah. dreamed about Keir, dreamt, dreamed, dreamt about Keir Starmer last night. Uh, we learned that Daniel Korski might be out of the mayoral race, but he knows how to hang on to his seat. I sit uh, appropriately in chairs. We learned that PMQs is better with Peter Dixon from The X Factor. PMQs Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. 
And we learned it was better with Peter Dixon's review. Blah, blah, blah. What a ruddy word salad. Right, that's what we learned this week. Now, it's time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop frantically battering away at my column. On Times Radio. Yeah, we say a very good morning to India. Hello, India. Good morning. And James is here. How are you, James? Good. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So I've, yeah, I've been to Parliament TV to see what goes on. Have you, have you, have you ever been on the telly, James? Have you, do, you, do you do any telly? Yeah, I've done. I've done. I've been, you know, I've graced, I've graced the screen on the odd occasion. I didn't use Night once. Did you? Been on Sky, but I mean, not, 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 not very, not. I did news night once. I think I've done news night once. I haven't been. Have I got news for you? Like you, I'm not. A, I'm not a real celebrity. <laughs> oh, <stop. laughs> have I got news for you, regular? Do you do a lot of telly, India? No, I don't like it. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> and that's. Uh, I, I no, think I'm probably with India. I no found a weird experience. No further questions. No further questions. Right. Let's talk about what's going on in the world of politics then. And uh, Rishi Sunak's launching the NHS workforce plan today. So we'll, hit, we'll get some more details on that a bit later on. But basically, there's lots more doctors and nurses. But crucially, not for a long time. Because uh, obviously, it takes quite a long time to train up your doctors and nurses. Um, and it struck me, India, that it's novel It because it feels like for years all we've talked about is how short-term politics is. And basically what Rishi, you know, if we believe the polls, what Rishi Sunak is doing here is allowing uh, Prime Minister Keir Starmer in six, seven, eight years' time to boast how many more doctors there are, even though he's done nothing for it. It's quite interesting, isn't it? But he also, of course, allows himself... <laughs> excuse me. He also allows himself to have something to put... Uh, in the coming election manifesto and um, and to say that they've finally done something dramatic and major about the NHS in campaigning. So that is quite useful. But I agree, yeah, it's a kind of really long-term thing. Um, and Labour will take the credit, although some of the ideas, as far as I can see, were Labour's in the first place. So, you know, maybe it all leaves out. They should have done this 10 years ago, you know, before everything was completely broken. But anyway, I suppose better late than never. It's interesting, though, isn't it, James? Because um, everyone sort of thinks, oh, it's all, everything's fine now, so we don't need to plan ahead. The whole point of leadership actually isn't like getting up and putting out a press release and response to the thing that's happened today and reacting to everything. It should be that you make the decisions now and everything works out better in the end. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is always identified as one of the fundamental re uh, weaknesses of democratic government, which is that they just chronically, we chronically think in five-year, politicians chronically think in five-year cycles, how can it be re-elected in the next election? It's very, the incentives for long-term thinking are not strong. I think that's made worse by the current media environment, which is so relentless. You know, everything is happening day by day, hour by hour on Twitter, 24-hour news. So yeah, that kind of, that long-term thinking is to be lauded. But as you say, it's quite, it's quite thankless. I was thinking of that example in London of uh, the famous Boris bikes, the scheme to have free bikes all around London, which were called Boris bikes after Boris Johnson, but the scheme was Ken Livingston's. Yeah. And planning ahead like that, you know, I don't know, we should, I feel we should have more way to reward long-term thinking because the system doesn't reward it at the moment and that is a weakness in our politics. It's also, I mean, I, I, I think David, I do remember this during the uh, referendum campaign, David Cameron saying that one of the arguments against Brexit was we were arguing about it for years instead of doing lots of other stuff. And I think, particularly since 2016, whatever you think about the rights and wrongs of Brexit, it just simply is the case that yeah. instead of having a debate in Parliament about NHS workforce planning, we were seeing if Theresa May's deal was going to go through. Instead of having a debate about building nuclear power stations or uh, expanding the rail network or tackling climate change or improving standards in schools, 
we were having another argument about whether or not Theresa May was going to get through, or was Boris Johnson going to survive, or was Liz Truss going to survive, or, you know, and and that's definitely, I. it feels like, India, that's made political short-termism even worse, when the question we were asking was, is the government going to survive the weak, rather than, are we going to build a nuclear power station to keep the lights on in case Russia invades Ukraine? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Brexit was this enormous, and then to a certain extent remains, a bit better now, this enormous black hole that swallowed everything up and turned politics into a kind of day-by-day, hour-by-hour soap opera. You know, it became, it became... It became ludicrous. It became sort of borderline comical, except that the consequences were very, very serious. So hopefully this is an indication that the existing government is past that. But, you know, yeah, I mean, years have been wasted, years and years, nearly 10 years. actually. I suppose there's, there's a sort of 1990s comparison here as well. That, and actually, I think even, you know, new Labour people are now with enough time has passed, they're willing to accept that the golden economic inheritance they received from John Major and Ken Clark. They, Major and Ken Clark get no credit for that at all. But the economy was in such good shape in 97 that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown could go on a spending spree, which did improve all the public services. That's a really good point. And I think, actually, I mean, I guess that's kind of from our this debate we're having, that's a positive perspective because I think John Major is now viewed as a kind of elder that's statesman true. figure. Among the former prime ministers, he's probably regarded as the, one of the more serious ones, probably because Tony Blair is a controversial figure for a lot of people, probably the most kind of reliable down the centre, people will listen to him. And that is probably a mark of having a legacy. I, I guess that kind of um, incentive to have a legacy and a good post-prime ministerial reputation is, a, maybe, is yeah. maybe a force on Rishi Sunak, people talking about the stuff about AI regulation that he's really into as you know, being part of his legacy. Yeah. And I guess thinking about, am I going to be a serious have a serious reputation, be a serious figure after I'm out of office. That is a sort of good force pulling people into that long-term thinking. Yeah, yeah. Although, um, India, one problem he seems to have on uh, a lack of long-term thinking on the environment, at least according to Zach Goldsmith. Who's just resigned, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah, I mean, all of that environmental stuff, which as far as I can see came from um, Carrie Johnson, seems to have fallen rather appallingly by the wayside. Yeah, and in fact, Zach Goldsmith is big mates with Carrie Johnson, so I don't think yeah. that it's completely un... Uh, and I suppose the problem is that everyone thinks that their thing should be a priority. And, you know, there's so, only so much bandwidth that the Prime Minister can have. But, yeah, it's pretty extraordinary for a minister to say that uh, it's not that you're hostile, you're just not interested. Um, so, which now there'll be, a, there'll be a real tension with Rishi Sunak. Does he, does he suddenly start showing lots of interest or not? Because he doesn't want to prove that he's right. Um, uh, James, uh, let's move on. But let's talk about America. Uh, because... Um, I know we've got a guest in a minute talking about America, haven't we? So let's talk about uh, dinner, par- dinner parties. That's what I want to talk to you about, India. Let's talk about dinner parties. Because um, okay. you wrote about this at the weekend. Uh, what should you take to a dinner party? Because oh, I, no. I, Yes. I just think a bottle of wine and maybe some flowers, but you've gone like full in with food. Yes, it's not so much dinner parties as um kind of summer you know come to lunch bring something okay fine yeah that's slightly different dinner parties yeah i think dinner parties you bring a bottle of wine and loads of crisps and you don't bring posh crisps which are infinitely inferior to walker's ready salted you bring proper (laughs) crisps proper crisps and everybody's always really happy to see a proper crisp no this was more like you know we're we're having a barbecue can you bring pudding sort of thing yeah and so what go on then give me your go-to's I can't remember because I write my columns two weeks in advance and I'm about to go on holiday. I'm going to tell I'm you, India, gratin potatoes and tart tata. That's what you do. 
yeah, that's what you do. Exactly. There you go. Tap, 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 which people think is really difficult to make. I was going to say, do you, do you only take dishes which involve slicing things thinly and then, then laying, them, laying them up? Precisely. Because you've got an oven, it does all the work for you, you shove it in, and then you appear with your thing and it looks magnificent even though it was really easy. What are you taking to a dinner party? I'm very intrigued to know what Matt Chorley will... If I have you to dinner, what are you turning up with? Uh, well, wine. Yeah. But come on, potato gratin, tart tan, surely, something like that. What would I bring? Oh, it's an interesting question. I do do a good quiche. If it was like Ooh, a date I time... I can see that, actually. Yeah, I, do I can weird, see that. Right, that's my... Um, uh, that's my go-to. Good pastry fingers. My mm, my, my yeah. cookery teacher. Well, told you me had once. your delicious pasta that you once served me. Actually, that's what I want you to bring. You served me uh, live whose on air. Was that? David, David Cameron's, Cameron's pasta. David Cameron's sausage pasta. David Cameron's sausage, sausage pasta, pasta live on air. <laughs> I didn't feed it to you like um, Lee Anderson and those baked beans. No, I, I phrased that badly, as <laughs> soft as seems to happen from the radio. I ate David Cameron's sausage pasta with my own hands. And a fork, a fork in a fact. Fork, a a fork. fork. You used a fork. What, uh, if, you, if you were coming to dinner... Uh, oh, my wife's just been saying it's rude to take food to a dinner party unless asked. I think we are drawing a distinction, aren't we? If it's a sort of yes, yes. summer summer lunch glass of rosé, bring something for yeah, the table. Exactly. That's what we're talking about. Not no, like, no, I know Matt Chorley can't cook, I'd I'm going to bring my own potato gratin. I'm going to turn up with... Uh, I don't read that man's uh, sausage pasta. We are going We are going to James's house, but I'm going to take my own <laughs> rack of lamb. Probably advised, to be honest, at <laughs> my house, given my level of cooking. So what's your what's your go-to? Oh, God, well, I'm a mega social faux pas, because I always pride myself on bringing posh crisps, like kettle chips. No. Uh, oh. But India's told me that's not the way to go. This is I mean, interesting well, I mean people do like them. I appreciate that people like them, but I just think you can't be already salted or a salt and vinegar if you're going to push the boat out but all those posh crisps and stupid flavors are just not as good they're not as good as a humble walkers ready salted i stand corrected i'm retreating. where do you stand on dips india i'm pro them you need a chunkier thing for a dip in which case you make pitta crisps out of pitta bread that you slit in half um, horizontally and then you cut the little bits into triangles and then you put them in the oven until they're crispy and then you've got a the only, I'm beginning to think the only thing that India can cook is cutting things into small slices <laughs> and putting <laughs> them in the oven. That's what I do. That's what I do. No, but then you've got a sturdy receptacle for your dip. I think we need to put a lot of pressure on India to describe how to cook a chicken or a side of yeah, beef or something because I'm really unconvinced. You get a chicken, that... you cut it into small pieces <laughs> you cut it into and then you layer it up in the oven. <laughs> and you put it in the oven. That's what you do. We need to get you in the studio one day with some food, India. The next yeah, time you're in London. I don't think food ever works. Well, actually, the David Cameron sausage yeah. pasta. Obviously, if, Matt can, if, Matt, if Matt can do it, I think I think you should step up, India, and serve us okay, will, potato gratin. The mince pies are good. I mean, I know it's the wrong time of year. I've never had your mince pies. Yeah, again, it's all about the pastry. Pastry, pastry hands. Um, I'll come to the studio with a tray of thinly sliced things that I've got in the oven. <laughs> Well, I, for one, look forward to that. Uh, you don't get that from Daddy Finkelstein. Uh, right, in a minute, right, we are going to turn our attention to America in a minute because James says we should stop being so American. That's basically it, isn't it? Yeah, exactly it. Yeah. Couldn't have put it better myself. Mike's going to bring a pizza. This is what we should do. We should organise a buffet. Listeners could just turn up with, with some dishes. Well, there's somebody told me once when I first started doing the radio, they said, never eat food the listeners have sent in. <laughs> Why? I trust this... Mike. I trust Mike and his pizza. I he seems like I an honest okay. guy. I think it'll be okay. Actually, talking of food that people have sent in, I've got that big box of Fray Bentos pies out there we can't shift. So, yeah, we'll try to have some of those. Yeah. yeah. Now, James. James, you've been writing about America. Yeah. And why we are too infatuated with America, or sort of more than that. Instead of finding Americans amusing, we're sort of emulating them. 
Yeah, I think there's a real kind of problem for any country that speaks English and has the internet, which is that our entire culture is just saturated with American TV, American films, American politics. And I think this is a kind of really weird distorting effect on uh, the kind of debates we have uh, on our politics. Just, I mean, politicians especially are obsessed with America. There's so many fascinating examples of uh, politicians basically trying to kind of turn Britain into America. There was a plan, I think Michael Gove had, to have Britain turn... All our regions are going to be run by governors, just like in America. Um you know, at Glastonbury last week, people debating whether we should whether we should defund the police, which is a kind of real American obsession because the American police is, you know, very heavily armed and much more lethal than our police. And all these kind of things that we obsess over seem to be to be American obsessions. And I think once upon a time, we had a kind of healthy skepticism about Americans. We viewed them as slightly funny and in some ways a bit absurd. And I sort of thought if we could bring that back a little bit, we could sort of resist the kind of endless Americanization of our of our culture, which I think is... I don't know, not always good for our politics at the moment. What do you think, um, India? Was it better when we just laughed at them for having big buckets of popcorn and being a bit fat? Much better, much better. <laughs> it's insane to think that we're in any way alike, apart from the shared language. You know, that we're really, really not like America at all. I mean, we are becoming more like America because of the very things that James discusses in his very good column. But, 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 but sort of temperamentally, the UK and America are poles apart on almost everything and so I, I'm particularly irritated by the kind of I hate saying culture wars but the sort of culture warsy stuff you know which a lot of which bears very little relation to what's happening in the UK and yet which is kind of swallowed and reproduced and regurgitated endlessly to nobody's um, benefit. It's interesting I know you quoted in the book uh, in your column James but um, we had uh, Tomawa Owalade on a couple of weeks ago talking about his book This Is Not America where he was making the point that, you know, that Black Lives Matter in America is very different to what people were talking about here. And actually, it's that's why it's turned into a cultural. The people in this country were saying, look, there is a problem with race in this country, specific British problems. And opponents who didn't want to talk about it went, oh, what, well, do you want to defund the police now, do you? Or, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. talking about guns. And I mean, I haven't got guns. Yeah, uh, Tom, and Tommy was book is brilliant. And he's mm. so good at how frustrating it is, you know, um, you know, things like the NHS documents saying that, you know, we should all... Um, be more considerative of uh, BIPOC people. Um, but the I in that phrase stands for indigenous, which of course means something kind of completely different in Britain to America. <laughs> you know, as Tommy was says in the book, it actually sounds much more kind of dodgy and, you know, far right than it does kind of progressive. Yeah. And it's those yeah, sort yeah. of mindless importings of American ideas and American phrases. And we just sort of forgotten that we're different countries. And I think we have to kind of regain a sense that we're different places and different kinds of people with different issues. But let's let's bring in the case of the defence now. Uh, Eric uh, McElroy <laughs> is the American comic and host of the American Exchange. Morning, Eric. Good morning. So, is James right? Should we ignore you Americans? Well, um, as an American expat who's lived in the UK for 23 years and has a British passport, I probably could make the case for James uh, by just my identity of having chosen to live here. <laughs> um, it's nice to hear that he thinks that we're funny because um, I'd have to agree with that. Um, I think, well, I mean, I think British culture is pretty safe. Just listening to the earlier discussion you were having about what type of crisps you'd want to bring to a dinner party. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that you're going to be okay. Um, having lived in Europe, having come from America, I think the UK is, is an interesting balancing point because we're not as 
culturally homogenistic as a European country. Having lived the, in Germany, there's a German way of doing things that is only the way you do things in a particular part of Germany. And in America, the, you know, everything sort of goes. Britain is sort of in between that. We have a lot more personal freedom here. We have a lot more acceptance of individual identity, but there is a little bit of that um, cultural norm uh, that you have, you know, just the fact that you all accept the fact that um, pubs will have signs on them that say food served all day and food isn't served all day. And you accept <laughs> that as something that doesn't make you want to burn the entire country down. <laughs> um, does anyone want to mount, mount a defense of incorrect pub signs, James? Yeah, I think this is a, a disgusting assault on British values and British pubs. No, um, I, think, I think the point about Britain being a less sort of, uh, how did you describe it? Uh, you know, there are no kind of those sort of norms that are very strong in European countries like Germany. And that is an interesting difference, mm. as in Sweden recently. And they were saying, you know, there really is that same thing. There's very much a Swedish way of doing things. It's a much yeah. more kind of traditional society. And it's much more difficult to integrate as an outsider. That is a very good thing about, about Britain. But it does... I think it's the shared language thing as well. We're just much more susceptible to shared language, and, shared and now culture and telly and film yeah. and all that. And then, Which is, as, as you say, in so like, many ways, a good thing, but it also comes this slight risk that we kind of yeah. forget that there's a difference between ourselves and other people. Yeah. India Night and James Merritt there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, I go behind the scenes at Parliament TV. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, let's talk telly. Well, radio microphones weren't allowed to the House of Commons until 1975. We had to wait until 1989 for the cameras to follow and actually see our elected MPs on the Gogglebox. box. And more importantly, of course, it means we can now bring you PMQ's Unpacked on the Times Radio YouTube channel every Wednesday as we pause the action live from the House of Commons. Now, it's grown to quite the operation, allowing you to watch not just the Commons Chamber, but the Lords, Select Committees, Westminster Hall and much else. Besides, pretty much everything that's said by MPs and peers can now be seen at any moment on Parliament Live TV. So, for the big thing today, I've been behind the scenes with the Parliamentary Broadcasting Unit to find out how they do it. I've been speaking to the big boss there, uh, John Angeli, and he explained the fraught history of getting MPs and peers to agree to let the broadcasters in. It's probably... Uh, almost 100 years now since Lord Reith wrote to the then speaker and said, is there any chance the BBC could come in and start radio broadcasting of parliamentary proceedings? And that was um, treated, I, I suspect, with a degree of shock by parliamentarians at the time. 
and broadcasters carried on knocking on the door throughout the 30s and 40s and 1950s and made some headway when it was looked at by various committees in both houses in the 1960s. In fact, there was an experiment, a televising experiment that happened in 1968, I think it was. It, it was a short-lived experiment in the House of Lords. And there are some pictures that we've got in the archive of the cameras inside the House of Lords chamber. And those are those big um, outside broadcast cameras that you see at, at horse racing. I mean, they're yes. huge and on the floor of the house. My Lords, I beg leave to ask the question standing in my name on the order paper. Uh, my Lords, I assume the noble Lord is referring to the Shubrinist range and the associated facilities. Her Majesty's government would be very pleased to arrange through the usual channels for members of this house and indeed of the other place to visit the range. There are, in fact, no coastal artillery installations at Shubrinus. And not too many of the peers were impressed with this. Um, the lighting went up in the chamber so the cameras you know, could pick up the shots. So some, some members were going in with visors over the top of their glasses. <laughs> some went in with sunglasses as well. So although you know, the broadcasters got the shots they wanted, the, the whole thing was deemed... The peers a, didn't a, like a, it. The, yeah, the, the thing was a failure. But, but to be fair to the House of Lords, they also were the first actually to pick up and allow camera coverage in 1985. So, uh, you know, 20 years passed before the televising began. Radio broadcasting started in 1975. We now join the BBC's political editor, David Holmes, for the historic first live transmission to the nation of the proceedings of the House of Commons. This is David Holmes in the chamber of the House of Commons, waiting for an afternoon of what could be absorbing political interest, waiting for that to begin. Question time with Mr Tony Benn and his Department of Industry team in just under 10 minutes from now. Order, order. Mr. Patty. First question, starting now. Uh, Mr. Speaker, we intend to do our utmost to see that the Shipbuilding and Aircraft Industries Bill is made law in the present session. And I remember as a kid um, watching things, sad, uh, sad young boy that I was, watching something like the budget programme, where on television you'd have a presenter like Robin Day saying, we're now going to go over live to the House of Commons, and all you'd get is just the radio and a still image. And that's how radio broadcasting broke into television. So television could carry the audio. But it wasn't until the 80s when things really started to pick up. The House of Lords began televising in 1985. And then there was a big push and early in 1988. I think it was in February of 1988, the House voted to agree to the experiment. And it took another year for that to, to work its way, way through. Um, and then televising in the House of Commons began in 1989. The question is that all members who are returned for two or more places in any part of the United Kingdom to make their election for which of the places they will serve within one week after it shall appear, there is no question upon the return to that place. And. That was the first time that people in, in, in the UK got to see their members, the members they'd voted in, working in the Commons. Seeing what they actually did. And, yeah. and, and, and it actually happened at a, at a really critical political time. Yeah. Because the you know, televising effectively came in towards the tail end of the Margaret Thatcher Parliament. Everyone got to see for the first time. And I know you've talked about it on your show previously, the Geoffrey Howe moment. Yeah. That was one of the first big televising 
moments where people could actually see and hear the reaction of members as that that speech took place. But it was a you know a fairly tumultuous period, and and a lot of of viewing would have happened at the time. Um, televising experiment in many ways worked, although the the members themselves concluded at the end of the 1990s that it had failed. That actually what they meant was not so much that the television companies weren't getting what they wanted, which is the occasional news coverage and clips, but what about public access? I think that they'd sort of almost been under the misapprehension that because cameras would come in, everyone would get every, see everything all at once. But actually that's not what happened. The coverage was quite... quite um, uh, occasional at times, you know, you have a big international story and all of the media are focused on that and Parliament isn't being covered and so on. So the members decided to invest in the online video service ParliamentLive.tv as it's called now, which is where everything can be shown. And that, that really started to happen around about 2007, 2008, when cameras went into every committee room as well as, as having cameras in the chamber. and. You know, it's fairly rudimentary coverage back then, but everything was then being televised in the, in, in, in the old-fashioned sense of the word on the internet. And now it's possible for everyone to watch all public public proceedings of all uh, of everything that's going on uh, in the House every day of the week. You know, we've got a fantastic archive. We've got archive material for the House of Lords dating back to 1985. We've got a clip on the computer of of Harold Macmillan, Lord Stockton speaking back then. It's an, it's an extraordinarily rich archive. I hope it will not be thought impertinent of me as a very new boy in your Lordship's house to extend my congratulations to the Bishop of Birmingham. I've recently passed through the ordeal of a maiden speech and I know how pleased he must be to have got over that hurdle. He can certainly feel happy that both in matter and in manner he has made a most distinguished contribution to our debate. As time goes on, it becomes more and more intriguing. You, I think when you see extraordinary moments in the chamber and the video brings that alive, you get a real sense of yeah. what that atmosphere was like but there's hearing that watching back videos jeffrey howell speech is a prime example of that the sort of the silence the gasps the facial expressions it's rather like sending your opening batsman to the crease only for them to find the moment the first balls are bowled that their bats have been broken before the game by the team captain <laughs> and what about over time it's evolved as well in terms of what you can show what you can't show um, there have been quite strict rules, so it's a little bit looser now. In the early days of televising, right at the beginning of the experiment um, in 1989, early 1990s, the broadcaster said, thank you very much for letting us in, that's great, but all we're seeing is head and shoulder shots, which actually is true of other parliaments to this day, that they're fairly limited. And and they managed to get agreement from from members at the time that actually reaction shots were legitimate, and therefore, you do see occasional reaction shots of members when, when a minister is giving them a, an answer at the dispatch box, or as it happens at Prime Minister's question time, you know, the Prime Minister might be saying something, leave the opposition reaction shot, and you'll see exactly how they're reacting and so on. I suppose the big fear for members was that everyone would then think about playing to the cameras. That was the worry about the cutaway shot, was that actually it was an opportunity for everybody to pull a face <laughs> and deliberately. But 
unlike in a, in a typical television studio, when the camera that's on you has got a big red light on it, none of the cameras in the commons chamber will tell you which one is pointing at who at any one time. So nobody really knows what shot's being taken at any one time. But that was the big concession that happened in the early 1990s, was reaction shot. It doesn't always play out well. Um, and we don't always get that right either. I do remember an occasion where uh, a, a, an opposition backbencher asked a pretty tough question of the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister was giving him an answer they didn't particularly like, but a member sitting to this backbencher was having a chat with them, and they ferociously agreed with that backbencher sitting next to them. Our cutaway was of that backbencher ferociously agreeing with the Prime Minister. <laughs> so, so, you know, it doesn't... We, we try our best to, to cut away at the right time, as it were, but every now and again it kind of can look like somebody's agreeing with something they don't. Do you ever get like you're doing football and the camera cuts to a player and they're quite clearly swearing? Do you ever catch an MP and a reaction shot doing that? I, ha I have actually... I, had, I was going through some notes last night, actually, and... Um, it happened a bit during the pandemic that members weren't quite clear about what was being shown at any one time. And a few weren't aware that even though they were on their laptop at home, we were actually televising them and that was what was going out. And there was a bit of effing and jeffing that might have gone on on a, on a couple of occasions that, that we did put out live. So that's the sort of the history of it all. What's the next frontier of parliamentary broadcasting the fact that it's all now available online all the time yeah is there an is there a you know you've gone from print to radio to tv to online is there another stage that parliamentary broadcasting can go to so i think that we've tended to focus a lot of our attention over the last 30 years on televised coverage for a media audience yeah i think that there's big opportunities to share that archive with the education yeah. world and others as you know, we've done a lot of work over recent years, over the last two or three years, in trying to improve access for people who are deaf. So yeah. we've got British Sign Language happening now for every question time. And the speaker's been really active in pushing that agenda for us. And in the autumn, we'll move to providing British Sign Language for not just questions, but also for any urgent statements. Because it's really critical when you've got real-time information mm -hmm. being announced in the chamber, and it's certainly true during covid that people who've got, who, who, who use BSL to understand what's going on need a service like that. So John, we've just come in from what old school corridor of the parliamentary estate, all green and white tiles yeah. and so on. So this is a very high tech view of what looks like a TV gallery where we've yep. seen directors calling the shots back to TV screens. What's yep. going on here? So we're in Canham Road. This is the home of the uh, Broadcasting Service in Parliament. It used to be a police building many, many years ago, the old Met Police. Uh, we're in here now, and this is the Commons TV gallery. So in front of you, you've got, uh, we've got 10 cameras showing on the screens. Um, so 10 cameras in the Commons chamber being directed by our director today, Laura. She's got a couple of camera operators assisting her with the shot selection. We're currently in defence questions, and then we've got some statements following a bit later on. So we're in for a quite busy afternoon, so questions will finish around about half past three. And then we've got three back-to-back -back statements coming up this afternoon on, well, they're coming up now, mortgage charter, uh, situation in Russia, and then a statement from Stephen Barclay on lung cancer screening. So it's going to be a busy uh, four or five hours before we get on to the main business of the day. So we're seeing 
what's presumably the main shot, that's the, the minister at the, at the dispatch box. The UK continues to be recognised as the leading nation providing military support to Ukraine, training over 17,000 recruits and providing 2.3 billion of support last year and this year. Beyond that, you don't know who's going to be popping up Correct. necessarily. So how do you, I was thinking, rather than being like sort of daytime TV, it's more like sport. No, yeah, that's right. So we've got in questions what the TV director will know from Parliament's own order papers. At the beginning of the day, there's an order paper published and it will tell people which members have got which uh, uh, have got questions. And so we know that running order. But then, of course, the speaker is able to call in uh, uh, members at will. So we might have a question on a particular topic. But backbenchers are then popping up on the seats uh, on either side of the chamber trying to catch the speaker's eye. So we won't know who's who's going to pop up, which means that the sound operator in the Commons Chamber, who has an eye level view, sits in the Commons Chamber itself, has to be really quick off the mark in spotting which member has spoken, and they'll bring up the microphone. And equally, with the guys that we've got in front of us here, they're also keeping an eye on the chamber to make sure that they cut the right camera to the right member as soon as they're so anybody who's ever been in the chamber or seen it from, from down below, if you're in the speaker's chair looking directly down the chamber, to the right-hand side, there's a sort of glass box. That's right. So the people in there are only doing sound, not telly. That's right. So there's a sound operator at the far end from the speaker. And, and that's, you know, particularly with things like PMQs, when the chamber is absolutely packed, that's when that sound operator is really having to uh, earn their corn because... That's when it's at its hardest. It's hard to hear. Yeah. And it's also hard to see what's going on because lots of members are rising. And in amongst that forest of members, somebody has got the call to speak next. And that sound operator has got to spot that absolutely quickly. So member recognition is really, really critical to doing this job, both for the sound op and for the TV gallery team that are in front of us right now. We do not rule out incorporating AI within weapons systems, but we are clear that there must be context-appropriate human involvement in weapons which identify, select and attack targets. So at the moment we've got the Defence Minister James Cartledge at the dispatch box answering questions. He's just, he knew, we knew who that was going to be because the Labour MP tabled the question. Yep. But now it could be anyone else being called. Yes. It's interesting the camera's cutting backwards and forwards as well. The MP is sort of slightly heckling. Yes. Uh, from the, so, so I see, so it's, it's cut now to... John Speller, a wide shot. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And can I say it's uh, probably a bit of a shame that after he missed out on the Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of NATO job, that the Secretary of State seems to have reverted to no more Mr. Nice Guy mode today. So he's got up, and now there's a, now there's a more narrow shot. Yeah. Cut to him, but then all the other cameras are then refocusing again. So who knows who's going to? Yeah. So we now know. Pop you up go back to the minister of the back of this. Well, well, I'm happy to be Mr. Nice Guy. Then what the sound off is doing in the chamber is keeping an eye on the speaker. Yes. Because the only person who knows who's going to get asked to come up next is the speaker, and the speaker may well be giving somebody the nod. Yes. So that's the only clue the sound <laughs> operator might have as to where we're going next. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a and this is what makes the Commons Chamber different from some of our sort of international you know, chambers in other parts of the world, which is that, that often they will have more of a set formula as to who's going to speak next all the yeah, way yeah. through the day. So we don't ha we're not the same as a hemicycle parliament where everybody knows who's speaking. Yeah, because it's all it's all pre-planned. And, and when when it's jumping around, some you know, it's the person speaking it's the minister or the MP, but it's also cutting to them or to the defence secretary because he's being talked about. What are the rules about those cutaways? 
So when if the minister references uh, the backbencher... Well, it's interesting because, of course, it was the party opposite that cut 19 battalions from the army uh, when I was serving under her government. Then that gives us the opportunity to show a reaction shot. Um, and the directors use that fairly sparingly because, really, the point is to be focused on whoever it is that's got the floor. Yes. And we want to see them and the viewers want to see that person. But... If they are referenced, it is sometimes interesting to see how a backbencher is taking a response from a minister. And so if they're shaking their heads or laughing or whatever, then that's why it was Exactly so. So so yeah, so we're seeing it just there with a with a with a, a bit of interplay between uh, the minister and, and, and somebody on the on the government backbenches there. So And how do you I mean clearly there were what six hundred and fifty MPs altogether. We're a couple of years on from the last election. So although by elections mean there's constantly new faces, how do you keep across Who's who? The team here, many of them have been doing this for years, and the big challenge obviously comes at election time when a lot of new faces come in. So they do, uh, they have a um, software that helps them to train in member recognition, and they also have books on the desk right now. Oh, see, it's like, yeah, they're sort of like books with all the photos and names on so they can quickly flick through and just double check. Yeah, in that in, in that way, we're, we're similar to our counterparts who do the written record in Hansard, yes. which is member recognition is really quite <laughs> critical. Because if a member gets called by the speaker, you, you, you need to know what they look like, obviously, but you also get to, used to where they sit in the chamber. Yeah. So members have particular positions that they regularly occupy. So a bit like people putting their towel out for the, <laughs> on a, on a sun <laughs> yeah, lounger. Yeah, people so, have their spots they want to be in. Exactly, yeah. So, so part of that is, is the geography of, of it all as well. So the team work really, really hard at uh, recognition. They do tests on it. They do quizzes on it, that sort of thing. Do they? Yeah, they, they'll do quizzes on this sort of thing. And in terms of the, the captions, so I can see the BBC Parliament feed, it's saying James Cartledge, Defence Minister, so yeah. is that bring, are you doing that here? Is someone having to make sure they know everyone so you don't miscaption MPs, which I know does sometimes happen? It can happen, yep. Yeah. So actually in the uh, outside of the chamber right now, one of my team is captioning live at the same time. Wow. So we're doing it separately from the BBC. But that a bit of an advert but that live captioning service is available yeah if anybody wanted to take that in technically and it would give you the name of the member the constituency and the party um, and at least it gives you a sense of who's talking at any one time so i mean for hours and hours a day at least four days a week uh many weeks of the year what's the worst thing that can go wrong well one of the things that can go wrong is a fire alarm okay <laughs> because we've got to abandon ship yeah um and so um, so we will leave the coverage running and get across to a to a, um, a, another TV control room, which is actually a committee room, so it gets used for committee coverage, but we can take over cameras in the Commons channel oh, right. from a different location. So worst comes to the worst, we have to de decamp yeah. and head off somewhere else to, to, to pull things around. What we try to do is keep some form of recording going, so even if it's just the audio recording going on yeah, somewhere, yeah. at least we've got the record that we can turn to. And what about the, the, the angles? Because obviously some of, some of the angles are more flattering than others. Do MPs ever complain to you saying, stop filming the top of my head or where's a good spot to sit? Uh, yeah, I mean, right at the beginning, that was one of the big concerns that it, it's actually in, in the late Ian Gow who made the first televised speech in the chamber. That was a big thing that he talked about. I believe that a copy was sent to each of us and possibly even to you, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> which made the following preposterous assertion, and I quote, 
The impression you make on television depends mainly on your image, 55%, with your voice and body language accounting for 38% of your impact. Only 7% depends on what you are actually saying. The camera will be at a poor angle or, you know, the camera will show up wrinkles, that sort of thing. Yeah, those yeah. are all those really understandable concerns from when, when televising began in 1989. But no, generally we don't get any concerns raised by members about it. The style doesn't change a great deal, Yeah. so everyone's got used to it. And if you, if you were an MP, where would yeah. you sit? Where's the best spot to get a nice <laughs> shot from? If I were a member, I'd probably volunteer for, for, for divisions and be one of the tellers, because that's a lovely you shot get... down the chamber of... of um... And that's when they line up in front of the table. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's quite a dramatic shot, and it really does. You're, you're, you're down in the chamber, so the camera's at a lower angle, and it's, it's uh, an eye-line shot. So I, I would say if, if I were um, serving as a member, I'd probably volunteer for the for divisions yeah. and be one of the tellers, yeah. Can we, uh, can we go into the gallery, if I promise not to touch anything? Yes, we'll have a quiet... I'll just check with Laura if it's OK for you. Hello everyone, Matt Chorley from Times Radio. Hello. So what are you doing here? So I'm directing it and vision mixing it, so I choose the shot. That's transmission, the big one in front of me, so that goes out to the world. Yeah. The one next to it is preview, so if I hit that button it flips over to that. It's that one, yeah. Jeremy is doing the government cameras, one, two, three and four. Yeah. Mickey's doing five, six, seven, eight opposition cameras. Camera 10's always wide, so that I know the MP will be in it, my safety shot. And coming to camera three, coming to two. Yeah, and that's the gist of it, really. It just... You've got to be on the ball, though. Yeah, exactly. I like to think of it like a video game myself. I've got to be David Jones yeah, rather than the... Sonic the Hedgehog. Exactly, yeah. Zelda. Yeah, coming to one. <laughs> and how long do you do? How long are you in here for? Because it's a lot of concentrate. Yeah, uh, a long time. <laughs> Do you need longer breaks? Is that what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, well, you might think so. I could possibly cover it. I'm into two. Lovely, and Scott Benton, that's him in the back row of three. Great. So he's quite tall, so give him a bit more. Yeah, lovely. Oh, that's funny. So you you know Scott Benton's about to stand up, he's tall. So you need to make sure he's got headroom on the shot. Yeah, we've got a whole chart, all of us, of how tall they are. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad, no. Yeah, little things like that help. I don't want to put you off anymore, so thank you for, thank you for showing me all that. Thank you. Massive thanks to Law and John for giving us a tour of how Parliament TV puts the Commons on the telly box, uh, which got me thinking about some of the amazing moments which have happened in the Commons since the cameras have moved in. So what I thought I'd do is count down my top ten favourite TV moments from the House of Commons. At 10, when Tory MP Ian Gow made the first televised speech in Parliament in November 1989, he wasn't too thrilled about it. I have always voted against the televising of the proceedings of this House. Yeah. Yeah. At number nine, a Fathers for Justice campaign in the public gallery launched a purple flower bomb at Tony Blair. Order, this House is now suspended. At eight, it's Betty Boothroyd giving Simon Hughes what for after he just took too long to make his point. Mr Hughes, speak it out, come on! 
At seven, the resignation of Geoffrey Howe in 1990s, often credited with ending Margaret Thatcher's political career. The Prime Minister's perceived attitude towards Europe is running increasingly serious risks for the future of our nation. At six, Thatcher came out swinging in her final appearance as Prime Minister. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> At five, Jeremy Corbyn was telling a long story about going to Europe and meeting with the leaders of European socialist parties. One of whom said to me... Who are you indeed? At four, Robin Cook's resignation in the lead-up to the Iraq invasion. History will be astonished at the diplomatic miscalculations. At three, the leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, seemed to fall asleep on the front bench during a Brexit debate. He later said it was just a, it was traditional to sit on the green benches horizontally. At two, it's William Hague mocking Gordon Brown about Tony Blair's apparent hope of becoming European president. The choking sensation as the words Mr President are forced out. <laughs> and at number one, what a moment. The Commons was an uproar after Jeremy Corbyn appeared to call Prime Minister Theresa May a stupid woman at PMQs. MPs turned on John Burko for refusing to condemn the comment outright. Then Andrea Leadsom stood up. When an opposition member found that you had called me a stupid woman, you did not apologise in this chamber. And that it was a hell of a moment there. That was my top ten moments of the Commons on telly. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Tell your friends if you're enjoying yourself. Catch me live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your actual Times Radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.